know how many of you caught uh, not too long ago on social media there was the giraffe challenge. Did you, did you see that one go through? It had nothing to do with giraffes. It was a question that was posed. It was kind of a riddle. And if you got it right, you were good. But if you got it wrong, you had to change your profile picture to a giraffe for at least three days. And here was the question. It's 3 a.m. The doorbell rings and you wake up. Unexpected visitors. It's your parents and they are here for breakfast. You have strawberry jam, honey, Wine, bread, and cheese. What is the first thing you open? And the answer is your eyes. Right? Okay, you're all giraffes, right? right? The first thing you open is your eyes. And a lot of people are like, no, it's the door. And they started arguing back. And I'm like, listen, if you argue over this thing, you're a giraffe for a year. All right, just stop, stop, okay? Because the, the, the point of it is that you have to look at things differently. You can't get distracted by the obvious stuff. You have to open your eyes and otherwise you're a giraffe. Then I got to thinking, what if life is just like that. That our tendency is to get distracted by the obvious stuff and maybe get the answer to life wrong. Like it's the proverbial climbing to the top of the ladder only to find that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. And you're a giraffe in your life. What if you get the answer wrong? What if you never really open your eyes? What if you are a giraffe? And in order to get after that, of course, you have to answer the question, what is life all about? What is the twist? What's it mean to open our eyes? Now, we've been looking at these letters from Paul to the Christians in Thessalonica. And what we find in those young Thessalonian Christians is they were not giraffes at all. They got it right. They had their eyes wide open, and they were having a huge impact for Christ. Maybe you remember this passage from chapter 1. Let me remind you of it in verses 6 to 10. It says this, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and in Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Okay, now some pretty cool stuff is being spoken about there. Let me make sure you don't miss it. So after leaving Thessalonica, when Paul would travel to the next towns to share the gospel, what he found was low-hanging fruit. And the reason why is because when he got there, they were already talking about Jesus. How'd that happen? Well, they, they had heard the reputation of all these Thessalonian people who had uh, forsaken their idols, they turned to Jesus. They were loving Jesus. They were loving each other. They were loving their fellow citizens. They were being persecuted, handling it with great joy and poise and grace. 
So the stories of their transformed lives started to get ahead of Paul town to town so that these other towns are saying, talking about this Jesus guy and how he changed the Thessalonians. So now when Paul arrives, they're like, Paul, will you tell us about Jesus? And Paul's like, yeah, that's what I do, right? And so it's low-hanging fruit. It's really easy, and Paul tells them. So it seems like then these Thessalonian Christians, though they be really young in the Lord, less than a year old, they're not giraffes. They're getting it right. How did they do it? What we're going to look at this morning, uh, two ways to grow, two motivations, and one result. And and to start to get at that, we're going to go to our first chunk of kind of fresh stuff in the letter this morning. We're in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, and now we're at verse 13. Here's what we find there. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Whoa. Like that last part was kind of heavy. Did you catch that? Like, so before getting to uh, our two ways to grow, I'm going to hit pause. I'm calling a timeout. I'm going to spend some time on a sidebar and we're going to talk about the Jews. Because if we're not careful, doesn't that strike your ears as kind of anti-Semitic? And and we got to be honest, unfortunately, from the ranks of Christianity, there has at times come anti-Semitism. And we've got to be honest about that and own that and speak about this. Let me be very clear. Our faith is incredibly pro-Jew. Jesus was a Jew. Check that. Jesus is a Jew. He is the Jewish Messiah. The one writing this is Paul. He referred to himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. He gives his spiritual resume, well, really his religious resume, but look at it in Philippians chapter 3. He said he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul's like, like uber Jew, okay? And then, and then he feels so much burden for the Jewish people. In Romans chapter 9, Paul wishes that he could be apart from Christ, meaning accursed for all eternity, if only the Jews would turn to Jesus. Okay? That's pro-Jew. The first Christians were Jewish, and still today, there are some Jews who turn towards and worship Jesus as their Messiah. There is no room in Christian discipleship for anti-Semitism. We are very pro-Jew. 
And keep in mind that while this does certainly talk about how the Jews killed Jesus, that's specifically referring to the Jewish leadership 2,000 years ago. But I've told you before, remember, they couldn't actually carry it out. They had to get the Romans, who were Gentiles, to do it. And if we really want to get down to brass tacks as far as who killed Jesus, me. It was my sin that put him on the cross. And you, we did it, right? There's no room in our faith for anti-Semitism. And yet, when you look at this passage, it seems like God has wrath toward the Jews. Why? What's going on there? Well, sadly, most of the Jews rejected their own Messiah, and that's still, unfortunately, happening today. Most, not all. And what is worse is that, and you see it in the passage, they were preventing others from hearing the gospel. Okay, but note who they were really preventing. It was the Gentiles. If you want to find the racism in the passage, here it is. The Jews thought that God was for them and only for them. No other races, thank you very much. And that was repugnant to God. And so here Paul comes along and he's got a message about how the Jewish Messiah came and he's not just for the Jews, he's for all people. And the Jews hear this and they go, no way. Paul's trying to give the goodies to Gentiles. We got to stop that. We got to stamp that out. So they were not only persecuting Christians, they were trying to silence the glorious gospel of Jesus. And God was not okay with that. But notice, it's not all Jews. It was the Jewish leadership 2,000 years ago. It's particularly Jews who reject Jesus as their Messiah. And then it is especially those who persecute Christians and who try to silence the glorious gospel. That is for whom God has wrath. And here's the point as far as getting back to where we're going today. The point is they were giraffes. They got it wrong. They missed it. And we don't need to be threatened then. Listen, they're playing with fire. In the end, the the people of Jesus are victorious. The enemies of Christ will lose. We can chill. We don't have to be threatened by that. Now, in Paul's day, the primary persecutors at that time were the Jews. But that's not true today. Who are the primary persecutors today? Well, it would be pagans, Hindus, Muslims. Uh, not all. Some. But that's where it comes from. Or it comes from atheists. Polytheists, pluralists, postmoderns, secular humanists, and college professors. Not all. Some. But that's where it comes from. Pretty much anywhere the gospel of Jesus is going for mightily and fruitfully, there's going to be affliction. There's going to be persecution. And one of the most damning things against the Jews is all the evidence they had. And still they didn't believe. Okay, but time out. How does that play out for Americans today? Think of all the evidence and think how many giraffes are in America today. Missing out and getting it wrong. All right, now that's enough of the sidebar. I felt a a need as a pastor to tie off any anti-Semitism. So what we want to do now is look at this question, how to not be a giraffe. 
And what we're going to look at is two ways to grow, two motivations, and one result. And the first way to grow is this, the word of God at work in you. I drew that right from the passage where it said, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Now, what Paul would have been speaking about there is when he was there, he preached the gospel. So the word of God specifically means the gospel in that context. But secondarily, it means apostolic teaching, which then became our New Testament. And when Paul delivered the word of God, it wasn't just the word of men, it was the word of God. It was uniquely true. It stood out in contrast to what was preached in the popular culture. And what was preached in the popular culture back then is very similar to what is preached today. It's like, hey, what's your truth? Who's your God? Your God, my God, all gods, right? Like my truth, your truth, nobody's right, nobody's wrong, everybody's fine. And that is a lot like today. And I gotta tell you, that is a giraffe answer right there. Because it's confusing. It's not solid in any way. There's nothing unique about it. And it changes Nothing changes absolutely nothing. But then the gospel came. Paul came into that environment. And if you think about what Paul originally started telling these pagan citizens of Thessalonica, it was very, very unique. See, the pagans had a very low view of God, or really of the gods. You can make up your own God. The gods aren't holy The gods are petty, they're capricious. You can manipulate the gods. This is kind of how they viewed things. They had a low view of the gods. Now the Jews, there were Jews in Thessalonica. They had a very high view of God, but unfortunately they also had a high view of mankind. So religion would be good. Like you can do works, you can do effort, you can appease God. And so your self-righteousness is what God wants. High view of man. So Paul comes along, and in the midst of that context, Paul preaches a very high view of God and a very low view of man. Accurate on both counts. But there's a problem. If we have a high view of God and he's holy, low view of man, that means we're not. That means God cannot just wink at it and sweep it under the rug and ignore it. That means God has to condemn us in our sinfulness. Oh, and by the way, since we have a low view of man in contrast to the Jews, religion won't fix it. We can't fix it. We are utterly lost. Unless. Unless there is a gospel of grace and a gospel of forgiveness. Unless it depends on the work of Christ, not on our work. And that's where the gospel of Jesus comes in and it rings true. It rings true. It's unique. It's different. It's not the word of men. It's the word of God. And I remember the first time I heard it. I was 16 years old. And I didn't come from much of a church background. And when I heard the gospel, I thought, yeah, that's it. 
That rings true. That's not just some human message. That is the message of God himself. There's something uniquely different about it. And I can still picture in my mind the mountainside out in Colorado. I was at a camp. I was above a a swimming pool on the mountainside. I can still remember receiving Christ at that moment into my life. I was done. I knew it was true, and I received it in that moment, and I loved it ever since. And you got to know, it wasn't the human preacher. It was the Word of God plus the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what happened. And so what I want us to do, as we seek to grow in Christ, it has to be the Word of God at work in you. So I want you to receive it, and I want you to marinate in it. Talk about that for a second. To receive it. What that means, if you think about it, that's exactly what the Thessalonian Christians did. They received it as the word of God. Now, when you say receive it, think of a football receiver. It does not matter how good your quarterback is if your receiver fumbles the ball, right? I know, Browns fans, I feel you, right? Listen, but, but it doesn't matter, right? So you could have a, a, a horrible quarterback, but if you've got a receiver whose hands are like glue, we're going to be good. You've got a great quarterback, but the receiver stinks, we're not good. Listen, my worst sermon in the hands of the Holy Spirit with your open heart to receive it, it's going to be a great time for you. My best sermon hits your hard heart. What's it matter? What's it matter? What I'm saying is the work of a sermon is as much yours as it is mine. I'm not asking you to help me write my sermons. I'm just saying like in this moment right now, you need to receive it or it's useless. That's not just about Sunday mornings. No, no, no. You need to also marinate in the Word of God. What's marinate mean? Think about when you take a steak and you put it in a marinade. And, and the reason you do that is not because you want the steak in the marinade, because, but you want the marinade in the steak, right? And so it starts to maybe take on the color of the marinade. It takes on, it smells like it. It starts to taste like it. It gets infused. And that's exactly what we need to do with the Word of God. It says, the Word of God which is at work in you. It's getting inside of you. It's not just that you spend time in the Bible, but that you let the Bible spend time in you. And we desperately, as disciples of Christ, we personally need to be in the Word all throughout our weeks. Every day. And and soaking in the Word of God so that it infuses our lives. And we start to smell like it and taste like it. You got to receive it and you got to marinate it. It is the word of God at work in you. That's the first way to grow. Now, the second way, I'll be a little bit more brief with this, but it is to imitate solid believers. If you paid attention to the text, what we saw in there is that the Thessalonian Christians were imitating Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They were also imitating the churches in Judea. They were imitating solid believers. So that's what they did. What can we do? I want to suggest, you got to have mentors, many of them in your life. Some will be from a distance. For many of you, I'm a mentor from a distance. Some of you might have mentors up close and personal. You need mentors. You need to read biographies. Ah, I would love it if you would read biographies of solid Christians, missionaries, martyrs. Oh, it'll shape your faith so much. And then you need to surround yourself with solid Christians who are going in the same direction toward 
Jesus. When I was a young Christian, I heard it said this way, and I think it's so true, that if you want to know where you're headed, look at the books you read and your friends that you surround yourself with. Look at the books you read and the people in your life. That's where you're headed. And is that a good direction? You see that? And so there it is. There's two ways to grow. The word of God at work in you and then to imitate solid Christians. This is what the Thessalonians did. This is what we want to do. Now, two motivations. Two motivations. For that, we're going to go to the last part of our passage for this morning. So we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We pick it up again in verse 17. It says this. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Two motivations. The first one is to focus on eternity. One of the things we've already seen, you'll see it still, over and over throughout these two letters, there's, there are references to the second coming of Jesus all the time. He came the first time, he's coming back, he'll usher in eternity, and we are focused on eternity. We've already seen it this morning in chapter 1, verse 10. We've seen it in chapter 2, verse 19. A focus on eternity. Jesus is coming back, and that is huge, and that is what matters. Eternity matters. It's not the stuff of this world. It's not the opinions of people. It's not earthly comfort. But it's God, his glorious gospel, his kingdom, his word, his glory, the lost souls of people who live around us. These are the things that matter, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. Focus on eternity. Don't be a giraffe. Don't be distracted. Don't get it wrong. That's what matters. You've got to open your eyes. In fact, speaking of opening your eyes, I haven't used this rope in a while. Some of you have seen me do this before. Some of you think this is Francis Chan's. It was around long before that guy. Um, this is the longest rope I have in my garage. So this is the one I use. And what this is, this rope represents eternity, okay? And, it, and it's, it's long, okay? Think of eternity. If this were truly an infinite rope, I couldn't lift it up. It's just, it'd be huge. It goes on and on forever and ever and ever and ever. And when you think about how to answer the big questions, how to live your life on this earth, we've got to be people who focus on the long, long rope of all eternity. Now, when you get down to this end right here, what you see is this little duct tape tip I put on. I don't know if you can see that. It's just a little tip of duct tape. And what that duct tape represents is your life here on this broken, fallen planet. 70 years, 80 years, maybe 100 if you're unlucky. <laughs> can tell where I want to go. But uh, that's it right there. In light of this rope, that's it. And if we're honest, a lot of us are living focused right here. And that's a giraffe answer right there. Instead of living for the ro- long rope of eternity. 
Which are you going to live for? And you get it, like for that duct tape tip, that is a giraffe answer. We got to be people who live focused on eternity. Focus on eternity. And then secondly, another motivation is to make dad proud. Make dad proud. Now, Paul wrote in there, I don't know if you caught, he said, I was torn away from you. Torn away, that word in the Greek literally means to be orphaned. Remember, Paul is a parent and he loves his kids and he had to leave them and he was physically away from them, but not in heart. He felt torn away and he was just hoping for a good report about how they were doing. I remember when we dropped Madison off at college for the very first time. We were there for a couple days, but then it came to the end of that and it was time for us to leave. She was walking in a building to meet with her advisor to change like her whole schedule. And we're just driving away. We're driving away, okay? We're leaving our daughter. It was so hard to do. I felt torn away physically, but not in heart, torn away from her. And I just hoped that she would do well. I'm not talking grades. I'm talking doing well in life. And I just wanted a good report. And this is what Paul's doing as a parent. He has gotten a good report about his kids and they are making dad proud. Look, he said, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. You see, Paul is their spiritual father and he wants to boast about them. What he imagines is that Jesus comes back ushering in eternity and at that moment, Paul's gonna stand up and he's gonna go to Jesus and he's gonna point to the Thessalonian Christians and say, Jesus, look at them. Jesus, that's my resume. That's my my hope of boasting right there. That's my joy. That's my crown. Those people. Wouldn't that be so cool? I want you to imagine Billy Graham died not too long ago. As he got home to Jesus, there's no way this would have happened, but just imagine Billy Graham gets home to Jesus and he says, Jesus, hold on, hold on, hold on. I got to tell you, have you seen the Christians at Redemption Chapel? could Could you imagine? That's what Paul is envisioning happening right there. Now, remember, as we say letters from your dad, it's a double entendre. It's not only that Paul is the spiritual father to these Thessalonian Christians, but it is also that we are children of God and he is our father and he has written these letters to us. Could you imagine stepping into heaven and as soon as you get there, Jesus stands up and says, Dad, Father, Father, look at him. Look at her. Look at her faith. Look at the way he's impacted the world for the kingdom. I am so proud. He, that's my joy. That's my crown right there, Dad. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's exactly what we want to hear. And Jesus starts bragging about your impact, your legacy for the kingdom of Christ. Ah. Oh. See, we have to shift from trying to please man to trying to please our dad. We have to shift from seeking human acceptance to seeking divine affirmation. And if we do not, we will never be bold for Christ. We will be giraffes. We'll have missed it. And we don't want to do that. So what we then have are two ways to grow. It's the word of God at work in you and imitating solid believers. And then there's these two motivations focusing on eternity and then making dad proud. 
And that leads to one result, and that is kingdom impact. You see, these Thessalonian Christians, they were a through street for the gospel, not a dead end. Okay? They not only received it, but they passed it on. In chapter 1, verse 8, it says that the word of God sounded forth from you. Remember, they're just, they're less than a year old in the Lord. They're just ordinary Christians, and the word of God is sounding forth. The Greek word there is the same word from which we get echo. It reverberated, it rang out over and over from their lives. They weren't giraffes. Their eyes were wide open. They didn't get distracted. They got it right. And we'd say, how can I do that? How could I possibly do that? Remember, it's not your word that matters. It's God's word. When you share the gospel with someone, can you remember that the same God who spoke and flung the universe into existence, it's him that whispers through the gospel every time it's delivered. It's that God's voice. And when you preach the gospel, you you do not deliver human opinion. It's not your opinion. It is divinely revealed truth. It is uniquely true. Now remember, you say, what do you mean when I preach the gospel? Isn't that what a pastor does? Remember, these were ordinary Christians in Thessalonica who were less than a year old in the Lord, and they were doing it. If they did it, why not us? We don't have to be giraffes. We can have kingdom impact. It's the testimony of ordinary people that resounded throughout Macedonia and Achaia, the whole Greek peninsula, and changed things. That's what happened. Listen, the best missionary that the people in your life are going to get is you. It's not me. It's you. If God wanted it to be me, he'd put me there. He didn't put me there. He put you there. He intends you to be the voice there. Think of it this way. You know, you know how we love redemption stories. Don't we love those videos? The baptism stories? Oh, we love those so much. Here's the thing. From now on, uh, instead of any redemption story videos or baptism stories, we're just going to have the pastors preach more. What do you think? It's okay. You can be honest. <laughs> I don't like it either. Why? Because we absolutely love it when we get to see ordinary people who've just been rocked by Christ and how he changed them. We love those so much. And then when our coworker is ready to hear the gospel, we think, we got to get him to sit down with a pastor. What? What the heck is that? Why do you like the redemption story so much? Ordinary people being rocked by Jesus. Listen, Jesus intentionally took the kingdom impact. He took it away from the professional priesthood and he spread it around ordinary Christians. And then the Catholic church came along and they returned it to a professional priesthood. So the Protestant Reformation came along and fixed it once again and returned it to what we got the phrase, the priesthood of all believers. Echoed out of the Protestant Reformation. And in the, the 500 years since then, unfortunately, we have been gravitating back towards a professional priestly class. Now, I'm not asking you to eliminate 
my job. That's not the point. When you look in the scriptures, there are verses about pastors and shepherds and elders. Those are in there. And there's verses about paying them. It's not whether or not we pay pastors. That's not the point. The question is this. What's the rest of the congregation doing? Is it just the pastors who are on the playing field? Or is the congregation on the playing field too? See, actually, even better said, the pastor should be on the sidelines coaching. And it should be the congregation out doing the playing. But we have it reversed. Even worse than that. Like, it's not that the congregation's on the sideline. They didn't even suit up. They're in the stands as spectators expecting the pastors to do all the ministry. You wonder why have we have such limited kingdom impact over the last 2,000 years. That's not the way it's supposed to be. That's a giraffe answer. I want you to have kingdom impact. Kingdom impact is really, really simple. Here's how it works. Ready? Forsake your idols. Turn toward Jesus. Fall in love with him. Let him rock your world like for reals. Like Jesus rocks your world. And then you love people. Bless them. Pray for them. Give to them. Serve them. And then you let the word of God echo out from you. You tell them how Jesus has just rocked your world. And if you're that kind of person, you're going to have huge kingdom impact. In fact, it reminded me of this that I've seen online. Maybe you've seen it. To be the kind of woman that when your feet hit the floor each morning, the devil says, oh crap, she's up. I love that. Dude, you too. Like, that's what we want to be. And when you hear that, doesn't something leap within you a little bit that that's the way Christianity is supposed to work? And for a lot of us, Christianity is boring. I got to tell you, if Christianity is boring, you're doing it wrong. Like, that, that's the way we want to live right there, to be different. Be different. Listen, this world is broken. It's broken. Quit trying to be like a broken world. Try, quit trying to give the world a baptized version of themselves. They're a mess. We don't give them a copy of themselves. We give them Jesus. We let Jesus change us, and then we, we tell them how Jesus has changed us. That's what we do. It's okay to be different than a broken world. So let, let me wrap it up with these thoughts. You're going to die. 100% chance right there. Write it down. You're, you're terminal. You're all fatal. You're going to die. Okay? Now, what do you want your legacy to be? What do you want your impact of your life to be? Let me give you your potential future obituary. I wrote it in the masculine. You can translate. While claiming to be a Christian, he lived like most of the non-Christians around him. He made some money, as much as he could. He had a nice house, a nice car, nice vacations. He had some hobbies, but then he had kids. (laughs) When the kids moved out, he had hobbies again. Then he died. And the kingdom of God is not much different because of his life. That's a giraffe obituary. And listen, that that guy might have gone to church every Sunday. 
that's a giraffe obituary and it's not what I want for me. It's not what I want for you. Have you ever thought, why did God make me? He didn't have to make you. He chose to make you. And if you're a Christian, he chose to draw you into the body of Christ. And I guarantee you, he didn't do that so that could be your future right there. So that could be your obituary. He's got something much bigger in mind for you. He's got a mission. He's got a purpose. He's got an adventure for you. And I don't want you to live a giraffe life. So here's my challenge for you this week. I want you to find three people in your life who do not go to church. And I want you to tell them about Jesus. I want you to tell them how Jesus has rocked your world. And I want you to let it echo out from you. Now, if you need, uh, we have these little cards uh, around the building. It's the doorvideo.com. It's a video that I did that explains the gospel. And if you want to lean on that, great. But, but time out. Don't put me on the field, not you. At least add your story to it about how Jesus has rocked your life. You get out on the field. Tell three people this week. And for that, I want to pray. Bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, we love you. We come before you as your children, boldly acknowledging you're our God, you're our dad. We want to make you proud. Would you shape our hearts so that we just want to make you proud, so that we're motivated by the things of eternity? Father God, we, want, we don't want to be giraffes. We don't want to miss it. We don't want to get it wrong. We, we want to live for kingdom impact. And so would you use us this week and every week that we would be ones who have the great privilege of echoing out the great and glorious gospel that we might get home someday and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. For that we pray in Christ's name.